Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, We are glad to have you on this installment of Rated LGBT Radio. I am your host, Rob Watson, and we have a really interesting show today. Um, We're going to cover a couple things. Uh, There's some Supreme Court announcements that have come out, and my co-host, the editor of the Los Angeles Blade magazine, Brody Lebeck, will be covering those um, at the top of the show here. And then we're going to get into a really, what I think is a really interesting discussion with um, uh, a gender expert, um, Paisley uh, is a uh, Paisley Kura is uh, a um, professor of political science and women's and gender studies at Brooklyn College, and Paisley has written a book called "Sex Is as Sex Does: Governing Transgender Identity." So we're going to be talking about gender identity today. And um, some really fascinating points that I took from the book, um, and the book is a very deep discussion. So it, it um, basically leaves no stone unturned in this in this area. Um, but it really goes into the question of how different entities in our society use gender gender identification. And that um, it isn't as simple as saying, okay, you get to identify this way, you get to identify that way. But it has to do with all these thousands of agendas of different agencies, entities, businesses, um, uh, institutions, and what they see the gender roles as doing. So whether it's a male role, a female role, et cetera, that's the title of the book, Sex Is As Sex Does, um, and those gender identities and the complications of that. And we're going to talk about the question whether some of these um, biases are truly transphobic or whether there's something else, um, and whether they are not a reflection of uh, misogynistic institutions and a legacy coming from that. So we are going to go deep dive into that. Um, And again, this is a brand new book. So um, if you do like the discussion today, I hope you go out and buy the book. Um, And uh, you'll get a lot more information than we'll be able to cover in in our hour here. Um, I do want to go now to uh, Brody Beck, uh, because we've got uh, quite a lot of news stories that are, are breaking. Brody, welcome to the show. Hi, Rob. Good afternoon. Good morning. Good day. And thanks to all of our listeners around the globe, wherever you are, for listening to us and subscribing to the podcast. We really appreciate it. So as you mentioned, the United States Supreme Court issued three rulings in the last couple of days um, that has got many, many people on many different issues uh, in an absolute uh, uproar. So the first thing we need to note is all three of these decisions were 6-3. So it was completely conservative majority, and the three uh, liberals were just shut out and shut down. Yesterday, the high court 
ruled in a case that had to do with uh, religion and funding in schools in the state of Maine. And I'll just break it into the essence of the ruling. The Supreme Court said that the federal government and state governments would absolutely be in a position where they must fund religious schools on certain programs. Now, this is a complete walk away from where the court was 25, even 30 years ago. So the separation of church and state in this particular instance just got erased. Um, It was a suit that was brought by a family uh, in Maine uh, who had a daughter that enrolled her into a Christian school in this town of Maine. And one of the reasons they did it was because it wasn't a public school. But some of the programs that they wanted uh, to have their uh, daughter be included in, unfortunately, were not available at this particular school because federal funding wasn't there. So they sued. And the high court essentially just handed them a victory. So that was the first ruling. And again, that was a 6-3. The next two rulings were from today. Um, the one that's got um, probably the most amount of people talking right now, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against the state of New York um, it's concealed carry permits and other permits. And the opinion would essentially expand the scope of the Second Amendment to establish a new test that will probably render many gun control laws unconstitutional across the United States. Uh, reaction to the court 6-3 ruling uh, that the strict limits on concealed carry in public violates the Second Amendment uh, was swift and angry, uh, and including the state's governor, Kathy Hutzel, uh, the governor categorized the announcement as a dark day. In California, California Governor Gavin Newsom weighed in, echoing the New York governor. He wrote, a dark day in America, this is shameful. Um, The majority opinion was written by Justice Clarence Thomas, and it was in his opinion, Justice Thomas writing for the majority, said that the Second Amendment does protect the right of individuals to carry a gun outside the home. Uh, The argument, of course, being on the issue hanging over concealed, concealed carry, and open carry. Um, The problem with this is that um, for years, the court was using what's known as a two-step approach, and especially the courts of appeals. And when they were assessing these gun control laws, you know, what this does now with this new ruling is it places an incredibly heavy burden on the government to prove that every regulation of firearms is a, quote, part of historic tradition. Um, A friend of mine who is a writer for Slate Magazine, he's also an attorney, he's openly out, his name is Mark Joseph Stern, he lives in Washington. Mark tweeted this today. Before today, about 83 million people, about one in every four Americans, lived in a state that was strictly limited the concealed carry to those who had a heightened need for such self-defense. Now, zero people live in such a state. Mark's point being, of course, that um, this is going to decimate um, these, these laws that have been in place for years and years and years, and that at the end of the day, of course, it will make society a lot less safe. The president reacted to it today in a press gaggle. 
he said, we must do more as a society, not less, to protect our fellow Americans. Uh, the Biden, uh, the president also said that, you know, he was deeply disappointed in the decision. Um, the problem with this is that this doesn't do anything, of course, to lessen, you know, the gun violence. If anything, um, you know, this is the point that people are making. And I, I'm going to quote the New York governor because I think she's right. Does everyone understand what a concealed weapon means? That you've got no forewarning, that someone can hide a weapon on them, go into our subways, go into our grocery stores, like the stores up in Buffalo, where I'm from, go into a school in Parkland or Uvalde. This could place millions of New Yorkers in harm's way. I'll change that to millions of Americans in harm's way. Right. Uh, now, Conversely, those on the right are pointing out that the United States Senate is in the middle of negotiating a gun reform uh, law and legislation for the first time that would maybe change things. But the problem is the Republicans have placed restrictions in certain areas of that legislation that kind of brings into question as to how effective this will be. This ruling today by the high court kind of more or less emboldens, you know, and hardens the Republican position on this. Overall, the progressives are arguing that this just basically takes and throws everything into the wind and just generally makes it unsafe across the board. And again, because there's no intelligent, well thought out means by which to restrict and keep the guns out of hands of people that shouldn't have them. And of course, the Right-wing talking points, as echoed by Senator Josh Howley, a Republican of Missouri, was, you know, we need to worry about the criminals having the guns. Yet it belies the fact that numerous studies, countless studies have shown that it's the proliferation of firearms and easy access to firearms that has caused the problem. You know, it, it's kind of a, to echo uh James Carvel and George Stephanopoulos' meme from the 92 Clinton campaign, it's the guns, stupid. Right. And, of course, the last part of it, the last decision, also a 6-3 today, Justice Alioto um, wrote this majority opinion. Essentially, in this particular case, it will shield law enforcement from lawsuits over their failure to provide Miranda warnings to suspects in their custody. This essentially also weakens the Miranda warning. Um, the exact language, which varies by jurisdiction of Miranda warnings, which was named for a 66 Supreme Court case, Miranda versus Arizona, gives criminal suspects in police custody notice of the rights to which they're entitled, which includes the freedom to remain silent and to have an attorney present when consenting to questioning by law enforcement officials, okay? Now, this becomes problematic. In an email to the Los Angeles Blade, Attorney and National LGBTQ Task Force Policy Director Liz Seaton wrote, as police continue to target black and brown folk in our racist law enforcement and criminal justice systems, for anyone who becomes a target of a police investigation, this ruling is just terrible news. And the reason is, that the issue central to this case is whether the U.S. Civil Code provides the right to sue law enforcement for Miranda violations. The court's finding today essentially says 
it does not. The task force policy director, Liz Seaton, says this is ridiculous. She noted that as part of the Q Plus Klan Act of 1871, there was a remedy specifically enacted to enable people to seek relief and, and, and remedies from oppressive acts by governmental bodies and governmental officials. Well, today's ruling basically throws that out. ACLU senior staff attorney Brent Max also highlighted that the conservative departure from long-established law and practice in the high court to seek redress when government officials violate their rights and which was enshrined in the country's most important civil rights statute just basically got tossed out. So these are the three decisions that, of course, have had great impact in, of course, the two days' worth. And sadly, unfortunately, we got one more really big one to go, and this is the one that's going to right. cause probably the most amount of trouble. And that is a decision in Hobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Center, the state of Mississippi. That was the one that was already leaked. We pretty much know where the court's going to go with it. That one's going to start down the slippery slope of probably removing other rights. Um, so that's kind of where the court was at today, too. Um, and the only other thing I've got is um, earlier today, um, a, uh, and this is just how clueless the light gets, there's a Kansas senator, and he's willing to hold up funding for school meal programs. This is for kids at school, many of whom, you know, depend right. on free or low-cost uh, meals being provided from the U.S. government to the Department of Agriculture. Essentially what his objection is, okay, is there's guidance, okay, that has to do, all right, with transgender kids, okay? And essentially what the senator is going to do is, is you know, if you're holding um, women's sports as a ransom for the radical woke agenda, then I'm going to hold up your funding for schools, okay? And then, of course, in a typically Republican fashion, then he turned around and said, you know, they want kids to go hungry at school but don't fall in line with letting boys play girls' sports, which, of course, we've heard repeatedly from the right. So that's kind of how today is kind of stacked up, Rob. So, Brody, um, the yeah. concerning uh, rulings from the Supreme Court, um, mm-hmm. some of these are initial salvos. They're not rollbacks of uh, protections in place. The the gun thing, the um, uh, you know, they but they're certainly a starting a trend to unravel things. Um, what what are we hearing as ramifications of this? What How can these be offset, or is there any way? There, right currently, there's not. Um, the immediate, we'll start with the gun, uh, the gun rolling. Uh, the immediate effect of that, and the governor has already indicated she's going to call the New York State Assembly, General Assembly, back into session to address it by law, uh, to codify it into law. And, of course, that will set up another Supreme Court fight. Um, the problem is that because it is a high court ruling, it essentially just nullified New York's rather stringent, you know, requirements on, you know, permits for, uh, weapons being concealed. Um, 
a lot's going to depend on the different various jurisdictions. There's already been some conversations, uh, you know, as far as the city of New York goes at Gracie Mansion, which is, of course, home to the mayor and uh, the city council, as to how to offset this. Um, it also is going to affect, I believe, 40 other states. So there's going to be a movement of foot to see what it can do to mitigate it. Now, some of the laws that are already on the books, it doesn't directly impact. California, for example, has got some pretty pretty stringent laws in place. Right. But because of the way the laws are written, this ruling won't impact them. So there's only going to okay. be yeah. some of the laws being impacted. But the problem is, is that, unfortunately, you know, it does give people the right to carry without permit, which means there's no regulatory oversight. So, in other words, you got people running around out there with deadly weapons that can do all sorts of damage and are now going to be able to do it. And the other part of it is is that, you know, Joe Blow Citizen can suddenly pull out a piece and blow someone away on the subway and, you know, scream self-defense or whatever the case is, and it just gets messy. That's basically the right. problem. I, what does this say about the Supreme Court itself? It, is it, to me, this, these rulings taken together says that we have a Supreme Court that is completely blind to precedent, completely blind to the um, the state of interpretation of the Constitution, the way um, it, has, it has evolved, and have come in with a completely politically idealized agenda, and that they're going to rule, rule by that um, basically no matter what. And it's you know it goes back to their their credibility as an entity, um, you know as as a result of that. Um, what is well, what is it saying about that? And taken in context with these with with the three rulings, and then of course the big one coming, um, the court will lose complete credibility uh, with most of the populace. Um, once that effectively happens, they become a political organ. Um, you know, and, and the way the, the path is laid at that point uh, for some seriously nasty things uh, that will take place, um, not will take place necessarily on the one hand, but it's not a, it's not an if it's more like a when. Um, and that's kind of the that's kind of the downside to this is that with that kind of politicization of the court, you are completely, totally losing out on its effectiveness. And you're going to have a whole segment of the American society that will have no faith in the judicial system. And that's when it gets a little dicey because then right. they start seeking other remedies. And other remedies is how you end up um, with the civil unrest and, and the scenarios that we saw during the Trump era. Right. Yeah, it's. I mean, especially the Second Amendment one, because that ruling and reading of the Second Amendment just, I I can't even fathom how they're correlating, especially since the Second Amendment specifically calls out well regulated. It's like it, it's as if they didn't even read the the wording of the Second Amendment itself. Um, well, the person the and, person and, most responsible for that and and for moving away from what most people considered the actual meaning to that uh, amendment, the way it was written, uh, was Justice Anton Scalia. And, and in the late 80s, early 90s, in a ruling, Justice Scalia 
uh, was the one that put into play what eventually, you know, ended up with an explosion and a proliferation of firearms. Most legal experts and constitutional scholars and lawyers that I've spoken with agreed that well-regulated militia did not mean Joe Citizen, and that's where the sticking point has been. Yeah. Well, okay. All right. Well, thanks for that. And again, you can read more um, in the Los Angeles Blade magazine at losangelesblade.com. Thank you, Brody, for that. So we're going to move on to our main subject today, and we're going to talk about whether it is transphobia or misogyny that is uh, behind a lot of the fight around gender identification. So with that, um, I do want to welcome to our show uh, Paisley Kara. Uh Paisley is the uh, professor of political science and women's gender studies at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Center of the City, the University of New York. Um, Paisley is an award-winning author. He is founding co-editor of the journal Transgender Studies Quarterly and the co-editor of Transgender Right and Corpus, an interdisciplinary reader on bodies and knowledge. Uh, so with that, welcome to the show, Paisley. How are you doing? Great. Thank you so much, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's, it's great to have you. So let, let's go right to the subject. Uh, gender identification. Why in the world and do we have it at all? Why, I mean, why does it matter that we identify the humans in this country by a gender? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think it's because gender becomes like a way to keep track of people, becomes a way to keep track of who's marrying who. Some historians go back to um, Napoleon, and uh, and he wanted to keep track of the population. He wanted to keep track of you know each village and how many boys and girls were being born because he wanted to keep track of the boys so he could come by when they're 15 years old and scoop them up to the military so it's a kind of a way of like keeping track of like one's labor power one's you know um reproductive power so um but gender has always got to do with other things so for a long time in the US history it's been about marriage about making sure that um, people of the same sex weren't getting married and that marriage was a heterosexual institution. Um, those, you know, way back when they started Social Security benefits, you know, married spouses could get uh, survivor benefits, uh, unmarried people couldn't. So um, it's always wrapped up in these larger systems of making sure some people uh, get resources and some people don't. Yeah, it's and um, I'm glad you brought up marriage because that to me has always been one where, while while the whole discussion um, was around you know same sex marriage and and you know oh gee can two men or two women marry um, to me the broader thing was the nature of marriage itself and and that it was a dominant active member of society with a sub- subordinate. Uh, person under their their um, umbrella that they were taking care of, and that that had evolved in itself where the roles had become more and more equal, so that by the time we had same-sex marriage, marriages were kind of starting to reflect that, you know, union of two hopefully equal people, you know, in a in together. Um, 
but one of the things in your book that you you call out is that a lot of this gender identification actually is stemming from misogyny. Um, can you elaborate more on that? Yeah, sure. So, so for trans people who you know, you know, way back when started to try to try to get new identity documents and new. Um, uh, like sex markers on their birth certificates or driver's licenses. The reason why the government keeps track of who's male and who's female is to make sure that, for the most part, men got more things than women did. There's a few areas where men didn't. Men have to sign up for selective service. Women still don't. Um, but mostly it was a way of, of dividing um, dividing equalities. If you go back to the days when women couldn't um, – apply for a credit card if, if they were married. It had to be their husband co-signing it. So the, so sex was like baked in to the, to the legal architecture, like was always keeping track of sex. And so when trans people came along, that's, there were these sex classification rules that were in place. So they, there were these sex classifications that were there, and they would say, oh, we don't know what to do with trans people. And I remember looking at some archives um, from federal officials in the 1960s, and they were like, Wow, this is so complicated if we have people changing their sex. How is that going to affect their benefits? How is that going to affect their marriage? So trans people kind of ran into that system, which was organized around misogyny. It wasn't created to harm transgender people. Right. Then that was, that was the lucky byproduct. That, <laughs> That's right. you, got, you got two discriminations in one. Um, That's right. Take us back to uh, one, one thing that I thought was really – Fascinating. You broke down an experience you had uh, working with the New York City to, uh, or a committee uh, in New York City to help them reform their policy on sex markers on birth certificates. And in that experience of you working with them, you kind of uncovered for yourself and for you know, your readers and, and everybody who you, you imparted the wisdom upon. Um, the complications behind trying to do that. Uh, can you tell us about that experience and, and where that led you? Yeah, sure. That was for me was like an aha moment, but it probably took like six or seven years. It was a very long, slow aha moment. But like in 2005, I was invited to be on this committee of the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene as a transgender rights advocate and scholar with some other advocates and some medical professionals. And the idea was to reform New York City's birth certificate policy because they had this terrible policy that had been maybe a little progressive in the 1970s, but by 2005 it wasn't. And it said if you were transsexual, born in the city, you could get a new birth certificate and it wouldn't have any gender marker on it. And you would have to even you would have to have the full panoply of surgeries and everything like that. So we uh, on this committee we kind of came up with a proposal that uh, the the city should change its uh, policy to make uh, one's classification as M or F based on gender identity, and that was basically a proposal. But what happened was the city shopped it around. The city uh, department of health shopped it around to other city agencies. And some city agencies were fine with it, and others put the brakes on it. They're like, no, 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 this is not going to work for, you know, corrections, or this is not going to work for welfare benefits. Um, and so this, the city kind of shelved our more radical, not more radical, but our more kind of fair policy, and went back to just, you know, if you're, gonna, if you're a transgender person, you have to have surgery and do the, all this sort of thing to get a new, to get a new birth uh, certificate with a sex marker on it. Um, 
And then a few years later, a transgender legal group sued the city and said, this is not fair. This is arbitrary. It's irrational. It makes no sense. And the city lawyers replied. They said, it's not irrational. We can define sex differently at different agencies if we want to because sex has different works differently in different agencies. And that's when I realized, like, the advocates and the bureaucrats were talking at cross-purposes, like the I mean, us advocates were talking about, like, how can we really define sex? The only really fair way that would work for everybody would be to make it based on gender identity. So we were kind of talking about, like, what, are, what really is sex and what really is gender? But the bureaucrats were talking about, like, what sex does at a particular agency. And they were thinking about how it would affect their, their operations. And that's when I realized, like, sex is not so much a thing in itself, but like a tool for, govern, for governing. Yeah, no, absolutely, and, and particularly the agencies where it involves, like, where an individual sleeps and, you know, bedding and, and cohabiting and things like that. And what what is your take on that? Yeah, when it, when it comes to, like, when it comes to, um, like, like abstract kind of recognition, like you get to be equal, we'll treat you equally. That's all fine. And then when it comes to people's bodies in in a particular place, then there's more resistance. Um, but it, interestingly, to go back to the point about marriage you raised earlier, one of the biggest points of resistance was that you know when we were working on this policy and when that transgender rights group sued. New York still banned same-sex marriage. So when I was doing research for this academic book, uh, I talked to some of the bureaucrats, and they said, actually, what we were really afraid of was, like, uh, if we had a policy that didn't require people changing their bodies, we were worried that, like, a cisgender lesbian would say she was a transgender man and marry her cisgender lesbian partner, and we'd have a same-sex marriage. We would, we would be, you know, effectively allowing yeah, a same-sex yeah. marriage. And they, they didn't put that they – told, they told me and a couple of people, but they didn't really put that in writing. But that was their real fear that would undermine opposite-sex marriage. Yeah, and which is – actually, there were cases where that – I know in um, – I think it was either Mississippi or Louisiana. Um, I actually did an article before same-sex marriage was legal where a couple – it was a um, transgender man and um, his cisgender woman partner – were married and um, nobody knew he was trans. They, you know, they thought he was cisgender as well, um, and that was causing such this huge scandal. Of course, as soon as same-sex marriage came through, it it removed the issue completely. But um, yeah, it, it's interesting. Yeah, and what's um, really interesting? Oh, good. Go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, the marriage cases are super interesting because there are like lots of states that would let people change their birth certificates and definitely change their driver's licenses. But then when involved a transgender person in, in a marriage, there are all these appellate decisions that said, uh, no, your, your sex is your birth sex for the purposes of marriage. So they'd be like, oh, yeah, you can, you can be assigned male at birth and get an F on your driver's license. But in terms of marriage, you're always going to be um, an M. And so what I realized was, like, when it comes to, like, things that help the state, like driver's licenses, like, me, I'm a transgender man, I'm balding, I have a beard, like, I just look like a man. And if, this, if I get pulled over and the police officer wants my driver's license, if I hand over a, an identity document with an 
with an F on it, it doesn't really help them keep track of me, you know? So it's good that I right. get to have an M on my driver's license, but it's also good for the government. But then when it comes to marriage, it's slightly different. This is before Obergefell. It was, it, when it comes to marriage, it's like people are fighting over things. So these marriage cases, they're fighting over custody of the children or they're fighting over an estate. And that's where transgender people lose out. I mean, one of the worst cases involved this trans woman in Texas. Her husband died and she sued the hospital, and the hospital's lawyers were so smart and sort of evil but smart, said, you know what? We don't have to, def- we don't have to defend this malpractice lawsuit. We'll just say that because she was assigned male at birth, that she was always a man, and that this is not a legal marriage, and she has no standing to sue. And that's what a Texas court said. The Texas court said, God, uh, surgeon cannot change with a scalpel what God created. And so it's an example oh, of like geez. when trans people would get something material out of the case, they often lost. <laughs> Ridiculous. And let's go to that, yeah. the question, though, because that, it, this comes up uh, in a lot of the, the things that, that you discuss, which is that oftentimes the definition, especially when the individual is transgender, goes to their medical status of, within their transition process, whether they've had surgery, whether they've, they're on hormones, whether all of this type of things are, are in place. And it, it is both ignored and discussed in a lot of these issues currently um, with transgender women athletes. You know, it's like, okay, they're, you know, how, many, how much hormones should they be on that they qualify for women's sports or um, how, you know, and from the right perspective, they choose to ignore that factor altogether. What, what is the correct answer there? Well, I think the correct answer is to, like, um, have it be context-specific. So what we have now with, with this, the kind of furor over sports is we have, like, middle schoolers being denied any opportunity to participate in sports because they're transgender or they're being or or standards that are suitable for professional olympic athletes are applied to a 12 year old who wants to play intramural volleyball so it's just so in one sense it's just totally out of whack like it's just good for people to play sports everybody should play sports trans girls should be able to play intramural volleyball or whatever they want to do so so there's a real kind of overreach into saying where not, you know no people have to play sports according to the birth sex and then when it comes to the more kind of competitive sports like ncaa and sports during the olympics the 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 answer should be sort of science-based like what kind of um what kind of situation do we have? Like, how long does someone have to be on hormones uh, before they can um, before they can compete? But what we find is that it's the the science takes a backseat sometimes to, to the to the ideology. And there's a great book called Testosterone and an authorized biography by uh, Rebecca Jordan Young and Katrina Carcasis that just talks about how like a lot of the science is actually driven by this, the people's assumptions that if you have a lot of testosterone, you're going to do better. And in some sports mm-hmm. that might be true, and in other sports that's not actually being shown to be true. Well, aren't a lot of these classifications, I mean, to be blunt, um, both lazy and ignorant uh, in, in themselves? I mean, it's like when we go to issues like um, the, the bathroom bills, uh, I mean, when that first came out, to me the issue is privacy. It's like I don't really want to go into a public restroom 
and have any stranger's body parts in my face. And I don't care what, <laughs> which body part it is. It's like, and, and to your point of, of uh, you know, appearances, there are transgender men that if they walk into a woman's restroom, just, you know, their, their stature, their features, everything else are, are going to freak out any woman who is wanting it to be a woman or feminine-only space because these are completely masculine beings walking in. Um, it, it, it just seems like rather than deal with the real issue and the real things that we're trying to put in place, we're trying to tag on just a simple gender marker, which we're all individuals. It doesn't really address the problem ultimately. No, it doesn't address the problem. It seems to be like a, pro- a proxy for people's anxieties about gender, but it, there's no way to it. The, the, the bathroom policies that are bad for trans people just um, they don't really get to the problem. Like a friend of mine was litigating a case where a trans woman was just had been going to this diner for years, and she transitioned, and the diner was like, "Yeah, you still have to use the men's room." And my friend was, you know, talking to or questioning the the manager and and saying, "So, what would your policy be? Would you have everybody like show their genitals before they went in? And do you think that would make it your business run run better? Would people feel safer and have their privacy respected if that was your policy? It just it just really doesn't make sense because right, having people who are assigned female at birth who have transitioned that was not going to make people women feel safer." Stay, uh, safer in the bathroom. It doesn't. It doesn't really make sense. And there's just a lot of anxiety about it that isn't borne out by by experience. Because trans people have been going to the bathroom for a long time, and maybe people have noticed, or maybe maybe people haven't. But like the earth hasn't shifted. Right. There also seems to be. I mean, you you pointed out in a lot of the systematic um, areas of our our country and the world where um, gender markers are driven by misogynistic systems, there also seems to be almost a reverse of that in that um, a lot of the fear when it comes to transgender people have to do with not all transgender people. They almost are leaving a lot of transgender men alone, but they're focusing on transgender women. And that is almost a fear of, for lack of a better term, the penis. Yeah, I think there is this sense that um, the, the the penis stands for the man, and and there's a, like sexual violence, which is often committed by men, um, is going to be committed by anybody with a penis. Um, and the thing about the the folks who are called trans exclusionary radical feminists or gender critical feminists, like I think the focus on thinking about sexual assault or preventing sexual assault is so important and so valuable, but it just odd to me that you know if you're thinking about how am I go- how are we going to kind of have less sexual assault in the world that you would focus your attention on transgender women like there's a there's a group of people out there who are not transgender women who who are the ones who are committing a lot of the sexual assault and they just kind of get ignored so i just uh i think that um i think it's a case of um I think Loretta Ross talks about this, where people in social movements, they feel like they're afraid to call out the people with the most power because that's dangerous. They'll get mad at them. So they call, they call out or they target the vulnerable people. It's, so it's sort of a misplaced mm-hmm. anxiety about sexual assault that is, that is sad. 
Yeah, it's it's pretty bizarre for a couple of reasons. One, and I've always thought about this as a gay man, you know, it's like I use the restrooms with straight men all the time, and quite frankly, I am kind of curious about their penises, and I am kind of have that interest, but they don't seem to mind that I'm in the same bathroom as they are. Um, and it's like the same with cisgender women. It's like if you're going to get all paranoid about somebody having an interest in you and being in your restroom, lesbians are in there all the time. You know, so it's like, it's like why are you focusing on people who don't have an interest? The second thing is, is the people they seem to be most afraid of are not actually true transgender women. They are afraid of straight men who, in their fanciful minds, are pretending to be transgender women that are going to say that their their gender identity is a woman when they really don't intend for it to be that at all. Yeah, absolutely. And we saw that in the States and, like, I think there was, like, Kalamazoo, Michigan, and Houston, where the the right wing would run ads with some dude in a baseball cap walking into like a woman's restroom in a public park where children have been playing. It's like this is what will happen if we pass this transgender rights bill. These guys are going to be able to use the women's room. And the, the thing is, like, first of all, that doesn't happen. And, and second of all, the problem we're talking about is like sexual assault and sexual harassment. And like that is like that is already like identified in the law as like illegal. And uh, there's been some really good studies where um, researchers have looked at places that have passed trans non-discrimination laws that apply to public restrooms, and they've compared the rate of um, crimes in bathrooms with places that haven't passed such laws. And there's no increase in the rate of crimes that happen in bathrooms where trans right. uh, non-discrimination laws have passed. So it's it's this fear. That, that and you know I'm a parent. People always worry about their kids. I understand how I understand I understand that, but it's absolutely not borne out by uh, by any evidence. Yeah, no, none at all. And in fact, they've had to fabricate stories in places where um, the question was being asked, and when they looked into the stories, they found that that they weren't real. That that, that they were completely set up. Um, I want to switch a little bit to uh, the. Tr- kind of the transgender rights advocacy movement. And given, you know, your thoughts on, you know, what is really behind a lot of gender identification and the complexity of, you know, applying it across the board in different institutions, um, what do you advise those who are advocating for transgender rights to modify or retarget um, their focus? Yeah, that's a really good question. So a lot of my book looks at how like sex has been this kind of instrument of governments, you know, in 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 um, arranging how they how they treat people. But I think it's also true we are really in this very new moment now in the last five or six years where Republicans are actually targeting transgender people and they are like inciting inciting transphobia uh, di- directly. So, um, but I think one of the things that happens is like. Or when it's important for trans people not to get caught up in arguing over like what sex is and what the proper definition of sex is, because that's an academic argument, and you sometimes it's hard for people to understand. And as soon as you get academics involved, you can get like many, you can get five different opinions on a you know a yes or no question. I think it's so much more important to talk about the effects of these laws and to always bring it down to like real people mm-hmm. and who is harmed by them instead of talking about like what is gender and what is sex. We could talk about like Governor Abbott's policy and 
in Texas. You know, he uh, he had that uh, that governor's directive saying anybody who supports gender affirming, you know, youth will be investigated for child abuse. And, you know, the next day, uh, a, a teenager, a trans boy teenager, you know, tried to commit suicide. And then he went to a, you know, to a place, an institution to be evaluated. And they, you know, they found out he was um, uh, a transgender boy or transgender youth who was interested in, you know, you know, taking hormones. And then his family, they started an investigation of his family for child abuse. It just shows you the harm upon the harm upon the harm. And I think if, like, people who maybe are, are uh, confused by um, or, or let us strive by these, you know, kind of Republican talking points about bad transgender people could think about actual harm these policies do um, due to real people, that would, be the, that would be the thing to do. And not, not get, get tied up in abstract arguments about what, what sex is. Yeah, no, I think that's a great recommendation, uh, partly because one of the strategies that the Republican Party seems to have um, enacted, and it's not just with transgender uh, people, it also was with gay people and was with same-sex marriage, was that they, they attached themselves to an old-fashioned, quote-unquote, conventional wisdom. So that they mm-hmm. ask questions that they don't, they're not really asking the question. They are really trying to trigger a, a long-held assumption on the part of, of a person. Uh, like what, the one thing that they used to do with same-sex marriage is when they said, well, you know, all we're doing is defining marriage between a man and a woman. And to, at the time, that just sounded very reasonable because everybody looked around and that's all you saw was marriage between a man and a woman across the board. That was, that was the image of marriage. And so it was asking kind of a, a um, rhetorical question on that. And I think that's what they're doing with um, transgender people now where they're saying, you know, well, what is a woman? You know, that was, that was she wasn't really asking that question. She, she, she had an answer in her mind, and she wanted – the answer to be somebody with a vagina was the answer she wanted spelled out. You know, it's um, with that, and I, I love your recommendation on um, sticking to the effect. Um, what what about for transgender advocates looking into situations that are not so simple that institutions have to deal with? Um, what were some of those that you came across and um, how did you navigate those? Well, I think like um, I think I think one of the I mean sports is maybe the most difficult one because there is some and the, the funny thing about sports is like I'm not entirely convinced that the Republicans who are attacking trans girls playing sports are really the biggest advocates for girls' sports. A lot of them fought Title IX tooth and nail when it was passed and complain about having girls football or girls soccer teams getting equal time with boys football teams. So it's, it's a little ironic that they're pretending that they care about uh, the athletic abilities and, and development of young women. But, um, but sports is one where we have to, we have to think about like um, what's, what is a good context-based uh, context-based approach. But I think the other thing that goes along with this question about, as you said, conventional wisdoms and triggering assumptions, like just as with gay rights, with trans rights, it's really been true that the more 
transgender, the more people come to know a transgender people, the more they support transgender issues and transgender rights. And there's lots of public opinion research that shows that, you know, that has changed in the last 10 years. But one of the things that just came out in a more recent public opinion article was that we've probably, we've reached kind of a level of saturation with people knowing transgender people. And we're coming up against all this like Republican discourse and QAnon craziness where people are giving taking their social cues not from their family members their neighbors or people they work with but from niche places on social media and the internet and so i think we have to work really hard to kind of like um get more you know face-to-face uh contact in there so people can see the the the, the harm that that their policies cause instead of instead of just thinking about these kind of you know q and uh Craziness. I was talking to a reporter in Michigan, and the guber- a gubernatorial candidate there is is talking about trans supremacy. Like, there's this idea that trans people are getting too many things, to, and they're getting their pronouns right, and that's just like a that's just like too much, and it's trans supremacy. And that to me is like a, a sign of the upside down world of kind of QAnon Republican discourse, where getting someone's pronouns correct is considered like a step too far. <laughs> that, uh, just the idea of trans supremacy is like, uh, yeah, we're not anywhere close to that. That's a uh, good life. Um, yeah. With, with um, one thing that I'm observing, and, you know, this may speak to my age, but um, a lot of um, younger people, I have two sons, they're both 19, and, um, you know, I'm hanging out with their friends and everything else. Um, the The non-binary identity um, is, I don't want to say it's popular, but it is certainly much more evident than people in my generation even imagined. And the, um, the marker of, you know, um, the, the pronoun being they, them, um, that type of thing. Um, is that causing confusion for transgender, pure transgender issues? Um, how are those those identities um, helping or hurting each other um, in terms of gaining traction and and protection? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So, for a long time, transgender rights was kind of articulated as like there's transgender people, there are transgender men, and there are transgender women, and they've changed their gender from their assigned sex, and now they're the other gender, and so that was limited but it did it was effective because people were like oh, okay they're I'm, they're just in a different gender and then with non-binary though i think that's like a really important development for a couple of reasons first of all there's just so many young people who identify as non-binary um as like are rejecting the gender binary as as uh as uh as it's been passed down to them and so that so it's the non-binary movement is really driven by actual people and secondly i i think it also helps um kind of remind people that we don't need to be always classifying people on this on this as a either or as a man or as a woman like it's just like unnecessary and we see how so many jurisdictions now are moving to non-binary possibilities i think there's like 22 states or something that have i don't know if it's 22 but the federal government and a and a bunch of states have made it possible for people to get non-binary um uh driver's licenses um uh, things like that. So, so I think that's a really important development. Yeah, it is 22 states and, and Washington D.C. that people use the, the non-binary thing and the passport. So, actually, I think like that that is going to help move the state out of the business of 
telling people what gender they are because if you can be X, you can be M, you can be F. After a while, like maybe we don't even need to keep track of it at all. Yeah, no, I, I think that is um, an important uh, involvement um, because it, it it made sense to me in terms of, you know, in, in the fight for transgender rights and uh, uh, all of my friends and associates who are trans, it's like I don't actually look at them in terms of their journey. I look at them in terms of who they identify as. It's like I see men and women. I don't see see um, – well, I do see the the experience, but I don't think of them that way. I think of them as as their identity. Um, and but to have people look at the those journeys and go, well, wait, I'm not, I'm not at either pole. I'm you know I'm I'm not um, made actually sense. Um, Brody, actually, I want to give you an opportunity to jump in here if you have any questions. Well, I think that the thing that, you know, we found in the reporting that we've been doing and your know, conversations we've had with previous guests on the show uh, who are also, uh, like Paisley, leading experts, is that there seems to be two basic problems. One is that the right has a tendency to conflict, uh, to, well, conflate and conflict, you know, gender identity with sexuality. That's problem one. Problem two, as Paisley pointed out, is the misogynistic, patriotical attitudes of most of the Western countries and other countries in terms of just dealing with it. Um, and, you know, we've seen situations that we've reported on with trans athletes in particular where the right is practically, Tucker Carlson is probably the most guilty of this, you know, screaming that trans athletes emasculate, you know, men. And then they overpower women, none of which is true. Uh, the most recent battling I think we had uh, was Leah Thomas, with, uh, who was a swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania. And that case was the direct result of the international body that governs swimming now basically saying no trans athletes at all swimmers. Um, and, and that does have an impact, uh, particularly on young trans women that do want to compete. So the problem, therefore, becomes how do you address this in such a way of getting in and working uh, in, in a policy area? And it's become, it's become a sticking point. We saw it earlier in the United Kingdom uh, as they were pushing through a conversion therapy ban in that country, which is now stalled in Parliament because the Johnson Tory-led government uh, did not include trans people within that. And that was a direct result of the turf and the gender critical movement saying, no, you can't do that. Uh, I'll note that Wales and Scotland, on the other hand, have moved in a completely different direction. So it's just the main British parliament that's doing it. We've seen it here in the United States. Um, it, it, it's the, the messaging seems to be all around that. And, and in certain sections of the country, it's become hypersensitized, as we've seen in Texas, uh, where the governor of the state of Texas, the attorney general, essentially ordered their Department of Family and Social Services Child Protective Service units to investigate parents of transgender children for child abuse. Um, and then, of course, as you know, earlier in the year, although that law has temporarily been held up by court order, Alabama passed a statute that would render any physician who treated a transgender minor 
uh, as a class six felony. And it all revolves around the two essence arguments mainly put out there um, by the Christian right and, and the Republicans that hold to that and the Christian nationalists, I should say. Excuse me. I don't know whether or not Paisley would agree with this, but I think that until we find some sort of resolution to that problem, we're not going to see any long-term solution to the transgender question. Yeah, no, I think all those observations are so smart. And one of the things, I was just talking to someone from Political Research Associates, is that what they're called, that research group in Boston, and they spent a lot of time tracking the Christian right. And the thing is, what we need to understand is that the attack on transgender people is coupled with an attack on feminism. So the abortion ruling that's about to come down is is an attempt to kind of reinstate this gender hierarchy where women have less life chances, opportunities, um, you know, have to do these forced pregnancies. And so that's about bringing gender hierarchy back. And the tra- attack on transgender, the other side of that coin is that if you have a gender hierarchy, you also have to very, have a very clear distinction between who's a male and who's a female. So trans people upset that distinction, and then the, the, the gains that women have got through the courts you know, and, and through legislation in the last 100 years have, brought, have, you know, have, have made women so much more equal. And I, and I was talking to some of these folks, and they're like, oh, no, they really believe in gender hierarchy and men are natural leaders. And they might not put it in their Republican talking points, but it's in right. all the stuff that informs these policies. Yeah, no, good point. And um, we're almost out of time here. Um, but, yeah, you see that even in these, like gender reveal parties, you know, of babies where it's super important that we define it right up front. So, you know, which path we're going to put these children on. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a challenge. Um, Paisley, I assume the book is available everywhere books are available, uh, Amazon, et cetera. Sure. You can look me up. You can easily find my webpage, PaisleyCray.com. And then um, there's a discount code on my webpage. You get 30% off. So look it up and get it for 20 bucks. Thank you so much. So. Thank you so much for everything you do and for being with us today. Very, very much appreciated. Uh, for folks listening, the book is Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity. Um, pick it up, read it, absorb it, and um, get out there and help change systems because um, – it, it is really a profound discussion. Um, I want to thank my co-host and the editor of the Los Angeles Blade, Brody Lebeck. Um, you can read Brody and the magazine at losangelesblade.com. For those of us at Rated LGBT Radio, we will be back again next week. I promise you we are going to have a really fascinating show. You have to tune in then to find out exactly what it is. But I can guarantee you, It will be the quality that you have come to expect. Please ask your friends and neighbors to subscribe to our podcast. We love having you. We love talking to you. And with that, we will be back again next week. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. 